Good morning, everybody. So good to see you. So glad you're here. Um, so grateful for our team for putting on yet another great worship experience. They just uh, make me very happy every weekend. Um, listen, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. So glad you're here. So uh, excited about all of you joining us online today. Hope you're doing well. Um, so this is a really big day here at TLCC, primarily because this is Baptism Sunday. And uh, after the first service, we baptized a, a beautiful uh, and large group of people. And uh, uh, men, women, children, for some reason, lots of men uh, have made the decision to be baptized. I always like that. Uh, when a man's stepping out, making that decision, and, um, uh, and, and making a decision many times to really kind of uh, step out as a leader, in the, in the, in the, as a spiritual leader in the home. Anyway, um, uh, I, I'll, I'll just say that if, if you've not been baptized as a believer, that that opportunity will be given to you today, even if you didn't come planning to be baptized I just want to plant this seed in your mind. If uh, you didn't know it was happening today, or you knew it was happening but didn't know if you were ready and all whatever, and and all of a sudden you just feel like today is your day. Uh, we have everything you need to be baptized. Imagine whatever it is. Uh, you know, if I were going to get baptized today, I'd be very concerned about what my hair would look like afterwards. Well, they have stuff for that. Um, and whatever you can imagine, in all seriousness, uh, we have. And the, what we practice here at the Life Christian Church is called a believer's baptism. What that means is we baptize people who are, who've reached the age of accountability, meaning they are old enough, and for some children that's very young, and for some uh, uh, adults <laughs> that's very old maybe, uh, they, they, they've reached an age in a place of maturity where they're able to make their own decision to be baptized. They're able to confess their faith. And uh, what Scripture shows us is that it's when, we, when we're baptized with faith in Jesus that something powerful happens in our lives uh, through the Holy Spirit. And so the, the, the exercise of faith is necessary to the efficacy of baptism. Uh, and so um, today we'll baptize some beautiful children who've made that decision, and we'll baptize uh, a, a number of adults who've made that decision, and it's, it's a big deal. It's exciting. I personally have a very close uh, friends, people I care deeply about who are being baptized today, and then some of you uh, I'll meet for the first time at the baptismal tank, and I can't hardly wait. I'm just really excited. In fact, I'll preach a little shorter than usual just because I'm so excited to get to baptisms, all right? If I could fast forward my sermon, I'd do it. Um, the other thing that, that, that I would say is uh, as we're starting to get back slowly towards normal, still not nearly there in terms of the pandemic, we're starting to reintroduce some things, and today we have physical life notes. Now, many of you are saying, what are life notes? Well, the culture of our church is that lots of folks 
during the sermon, their strongest response is to actually take notes, be engaged, take things home, discuss them with their family, friends, small groups, etc., which is a big part of how we experience spiritual growth. So you can follow along with the notes uh, that are on the app, or you see them how to find them online. Uh, or if you're in the room, in a seat back pocket close to you, there are physical notes, and I don't know if there are pens or not, but uh, you can grab those if you'd like. And there are um, uh, notes under your seats if you're here on the front row. And just, just so you'll know, nothing makes me happier than after I spend 20 hours getting ready to say what I'm going to say on a Sunday morning, for people to act like it's interesting enough to say, oh, I'll take a note of that. So anyway, no pressure, but I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, and the other thing I want to say as we're getting back to some normalcy, I just feel like I should say this as a leader and the leader of this congregation. I just want to say that, that um, I'm very excited to, to, to publicly say that I've been vaccinated and I feel great and I'm... Um, and one of the reasons that, and I know that's a personal choice that each of us must make, but uh, studying the science as best as I can, I thought that was the best option for me, not just for me, but for the community writ large. I think the more of us who are vaccinated, the, 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 the sooner kids get back to school, the sooner businesses fully reopen, the sooner we can sit in restaurants together, and of course, as the leader of this community, the sooner all of us can come back in a normal way and shake hands and hug each other and be in small groups together and uh, folks still concerned and, 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 and out of concern for physicality, watching online, can feel comfortable coming back, and we can get these stupid masks off as soon as possible, okay? So just an encouragement to you. All right, so I want to begin today by asking a couple of questions. If you were to view your life as a story, would it be a good story? And could you write a better story in your next chapter and for the rest of your life? Again, if you were to view your life as a story, would it be a good story? And could you possibly write a better story in your next chapter and for the rest of your life? James Bryan Smith wrote that all behavior is based on a narrative. All behavior is based on a narrative. The fact is that whether we realize it or not, we are all living out of the stories we know and believe and tell ourselves and others. Most importantly, we are each, every one of us, are creating a story in which we are the main character. Our lives are telling a story, a story about who we are and what we value and who we love and what matters to us now and forever. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the first century and said that their lives were a story that had been written by the Spirit of God. He said, your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. What would it look like for us to be able to say that our story was written as we cooperated with the Spirit of God in our lives? Human beings are wired for story. God made us this way. The Old Testament 
uh, shows us God's story through a series primarily of narratives and poetry. God revealed himself to us again and again through story. And in the New Testament, we're told in Matthew's gospel that Jesus always used stories and illustrations when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. So, as we've been saying in the last, over the last few months, we should see the whole of Scripture as the story of God, the macro narrative of God. And we should see the stories within Scripture as micro-narratives. The story and stories of Scripture tell us who God is and what He wants and the actions He has taken to have what He wants. Scripture is not primarily a set of principles and rules. Scripture is the story of God who, motivated by love, created the world and humanity and determined to have a relationship with and partner with people who, out of their own free will, want what he wants. So, over the next three weeks, we're going to do a series in response to what we've been talking about since the beginning of the year. Again, we organize our spiritual growth themes around the three trimesters of the year in four-month periods, and we began 2021, trimester one, which will end the first weekend of May. We began this trimester by, uh, by presenting a theme called 2021, Live a Better Story. We felt like after 2020, it's time to... <laughs> push the reset button, right? And so 2021, Live a Better Story, and we began the trimester by doing a series called Rethink God, Discover a Better Story, where we just tried to tell the story of God, what the story of God tells us about who he is, what he wants, what he has done. And then we followed that during Lent with the story of Jesus, uh, how, we, how Jesus explains God and his story to us, and now we're going to explore how we can live our story with in that larger story, and my hope is that the story of God is so compelling that you want to be a part of it. See, my view is it's one thing for someone to tell you what you should do. It's another to tell a story that just demonstrates a truth in such a compelling and memorable way that someone wants to engage in that story in some way. Here's an example. When I was a kid, I was taught that I needed to learn how to spell and this was before the phone and the computer corrected everything. I was taught I needed to learn how to spell, I was, and I was taught how to spell, and I was great on whether or not I could spell. Um, but, but here's a story. I don't think ever about that. But here's a story uh, uh, about a, a, a man uh, whose wife has been injured by a warthog, of all things, who's trying to get the uh, emergency services to respond and finds out he should have worked harder at spelling. Just listen to this real quickly. It's an audio clip. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah, um, my wife got attacked by a warthog real bad, and I need someone to come up with an ambulance and pick her up. Okay, sir, uh, can you give me your address? Uh, yeah, we're at 1825 Eucalyptus Drive. Okay, could you spell that for me, sir? Uh... I'm going to drag her on over to Oak Street, and you can pick her up there. (laughs) 
I've wanted to use that clip for a while. I'm glad I got it in. <laughs> that clip's called Why Marrying a Good Speller is Important. The story is more memorable than spelling class in fourth grade. The story makes the point well. Now, I want to encourage you. I think that guy, by the way, I think that's from North Carolina, uh, that guy and his warthog. Uh, so I want you to encourage you now to think of your life in terms of a story. What story is your life telling? And I want to organize my thoughts today like this. Three decisions to live a better story. Three decisions to live a better story. Okay? So let's jump in. First of all, you have to decide what you want. You have to decide what you want. Years ago, I was very impacted by a book by Donald Miller called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. In fact, we had it as a recommended reading many years ago, Maria, all the way back at 106. And uh, it's, it's about this idea of thinking of your life in terms of story. And Miller uh, wrote that a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it is the basic structure of a good story. Now, I think that's a little simplistic, and I'll expand on it more later, and Miller does, in fact, later, but it's a good place to start. I'll say it again. A character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it is the basic structure of a good story. So a good place to start, then, is to ask the question, what do I want? Now, I believe in ways large and small that God wants us to decide, to know and to decide and to go after what we want. I've long been fascinated with the tension between God's predetermined purposes and our free will. God clearly designed a destiny for each of us, but it seems just as clear to me that he offers us choices within his predestination that are to a large degree determinative. In other words, what we decide and do matters. Our, what we believe makes a difference. What we do makes a difference. Our choices regulate whether we can experience all the potentialities that God has destined for us. And we see this demonstrated in Scripture from the earliest story, the, the, the narrative around creation where we learn about God's purposes for humanity. Remember, God created a world of possibility for Adam and Eve in the narrative of Scripture, but gave them the ability whether to choose to live their lives out as he had purposed them. He created a story for them to live into, but they had a choice to make as to whether or not they would play the role he destined them for or not. And of course, their first choice was to say no to that, and yes to doing their own thing. And in so doing, they missed the amazing possibility that God presented for them. But we also see in other ways, large and small, how this plays out. 
The biggest choice was the, the choice they made whether or not to simply uh, live the life that God had planned for them. But within that larger context, we see other ways that God interacts with humanity. One of my favorite stories about this comes from a simple passage in the Genesis narrative, Genesis 2.19, that says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So, God... Within this world that he'd created in such intricate detail, introduced a variable. And the variable was and is human beings to whom he gave free will. And this is demonstrated when God creates the animals and brings them to the man to, quote, see what he would name them. Now, we can say God had foreknowledge and he knew what it would be, but yet I think sometimes operates in self-limiting ways so that we can participate in what he's doing, the ongoing act of creation. And in this case, God, it seems, steps back, folds his arm, and says, Adam, here is something that I've made for you. What do you want to do with it? And the passage says that whatever the man named it, that's what its name would be. God allowed the human being, in fact, designed the human being to make decisions as to whether or not he or she would actually, how they would participate in God's story. Adam, what do you want to call this? And I see God operating this way in our lives in ways big and small. He creates something or he has an idea and he brings it to a person. And he says, look what I have for you. What do you want to do with it? What do you want to name this? Whatever you name it. That's what its name will be. It's up to you. It's as if when you look through Scripture, God is constantly alternating between being a spectator and a participant in human affairs. Why? Because he wants us to cooperate with him in the writing of the story that he's designed for us. So he creates possibilities, and he brings it to us, and he asks us, what do we want? I happened to be reading late last night, and I read someone who said, uh, I've never heard it said quite like this, from the creation, once God created the world and put humanity in it, God has never done anything without doing it in partnership with a human being. Nothing on the planet. Now, I haven't had a lot of time to think about that and study that, but my initial instinct is to say that's exactly right. Now, again, I may come back later and say, I gave some more thought to that and it's not right. But I think right now, I think that's exactly right. Since God created the world and put humanity in it, a, a man or a woman has the ability to participate in whether or not they, they live into God's story, what role they play, and it begins by asking the question, what do you want? I don't think God was playing around with Adam. I don't think God wanted Adam to make a decision that God already had decided that Adam would make. I think he wanted Adam to make a decision. I think that God was excited to have Adam involved in the story that was being written. There's this great story in the Gospel of John where Jesus asked a man who was an invalid, do you want to get well? 
Do you want to get well? Jesus is standing there saying clearly, this is what I want for you, but what do you want? You know there are some people, by the way, which isn't the point of the message today, who really don't want to get well. They say they want to get well, but their life is so caught up in the drama of unwellness, they really don't want to get well. You understand what I'm saying? God wants to know, and God's not going to make somebody who doesn't want to get well, get well. He asks us, again, in ways large and small in our life, what do you want? Sometimes we focus on asking God what he wants, and obviously we should. But our prayers are filled with, what is your will? Tell me what to do. And it's important that we begin there. But we need to understand then at some point, he's coming to us within that prayer and saying, okay, what do you want? And he drops ideas in our mind and he shows us possibilities. And we have creative thoughts and we, we see things that could happen if only we would act. And God is standing back there saying, here this thing is, what do you want to do with it? Within God's larger story, within the world of possibilities that are in alignment with what he wants. We should hear God asking us, what do you want? Do you want to write a better story? Do you want to seize possibility? Do you want to pray and ideate and dream and take risk and work hard to actualize a better future? What do you want? So as the main character in your story, what story do you want your life to tell? What do you want? And when you think about this, you have to think macro-narrative first. What is the main theme of your story? What do you want your life to be about? And if you're a believer, the main theme of your story must absolutely be aligned with the main theme of God's story. And then we think micro-narratives. We all have a lot of stories going on in our lives within that larger plot line of what our life's supposed to be about. And we have to ask ourselves in, within that bigger macro narrative, we have to ask, what do we want spiritually? What do we want relationally? What do we want physically? What do we want emotionally? What do we want vocationally, avocationally? What do we want within the area of ministry that God's gift is to, gifted us to perform in, in concert with, with, with the church? What do we want financially? Each of these micro-narratives need to be in alignment with the macro-narrative. In other words, when we're, when we're talking about what we want financially, it has to be in alignment with this bigger plot line of what we want our lives to be about in alignment with God's story. And if it's not, our story's gonna be all over the place and it's not gonna make any sense. So the first decision we must make to live a better story is to decide what we want. Now, the second decision has to go hand in hand with the first, and it's this. The second decision to, to live a better story is to decide to write a good story. Decide to write a emphasis on the word good story. Now, when I say this, there are two meanings for the word good as I'm using it here in today's talk. The first is, is it interesting? Does the story interest you? Does your own story? I discover this a lot sitting and talking with people, and I frequently say to someone, uh, hey, tell me your story. I love to hear people's stories. And, 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 and I, I had someone say to me recently, I realized when I told you my story, essentially it was, it was not really the story that I wanted to tell. It wasn't really even very interesting. I have to go back and rethink it. 
Do we, if you were to tell your story, would, would someone else want to hear it? So if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Maserati and organized his life around getting it, remember guys, the basic structure of a good story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. So let's say someone's primary motivation now, they've decided what they want is they want a Maserati. And we're gonna watch a movie now about a guy whose primary motivation, what he wants, the story of his life is to, is to own a Maserati. You probably would not be moved to tears when the movie ends with him driving off the lot trying the stereo system. Nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Maserati. Somebody might cry at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a minivan, but that's another story. <laughs> Why? Why does nobody cry at the end of a movie about a guy who spent years overcoming conflict in order to own an ultra-luxury car? It's because we all know that as nice as a Maserati is, and there's nothing wrong with Maseratis, and there's nothing wrong with owning a Maserati. I see Maseratis in the parking lot. God bless you. Let me just open the door sometime and smell the leather. But that's, that's again, that's another story. Nothing wrong with Maseratis if it fits within the larger plot line of God's story for your life. Don't misunderstand me. But if your primary motivation, the thing you're getting up every day to say is, I want to own a Maserati, we know that it, it, it ends with disappointment inevitably because things just don't mean that much. And yet, many of us live those kinds of uninteresting stories and wonder why our lives don't feel meaningful. What do you want? And it's not just what do you want, but, but now, if, if, is the plot going to work out to where what you wanted ends up being an interesting story? And then second, good to me means, is it moral? So, second decision, make a decision to write a good story. Good means, first of all, interesting. Secondly, good means good or moral. It's not enough for your life to just be interesting. I've talked to people who have very interesting lives, but they're not good stories. You understand what I'm saying? In order for your life story to be good, it must also be moral. What is the moral to your story? Anne Lamott is a prolific author. Many of you have read her. I've referenced her a number of times. And uh, she wrote a book about writing. It's called Bird by Bird. It's fascinating. And um, fascinating for a writer, particularly. And in this book, she talks about how when she first started writing novels and making up characters, that she would make up characters who were smart and witty. And, 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 and Anne Lamott said, really, she came to realize that she was trying to convey to the reader that she was smart and witty. But she said, over the course of time, you end up wanting your characters to act out the drama of humankind. This drama is best couched in moral terms. The purpose of most great writing seems to be to reveal in an ethical light who we are. We like certain characters because they are good or decent. They internalize some decency in the world that makes them able to take a risk or make a sacrifice for someone else. They let us see that there is in fact some sort of moral compass at work here and that we too could travel by this compass if we so choose. 
See, if we're not engaged in meaningful ways in the great moral drama, our stories are not good stories. Our stories must, each in their own way, advance God's good plans for his world. This inevitably introduces moral conflict to our life. We engage in the fight for good against evil. We struggle for justice. We speak the truth. We create beauty. We share the good news of Jesus. We sacrifice for others. We defeat hate with love. Each of us must find our own way to make sure that we engage in good in order to write a good story. So Miller, in his book I've referenced a couple of times, talks about having a friend named Jason. Jason had a 13-year-old daughter, and uh, Jason has a conversation with, 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 with Donald Miller, and he said that he and his wife have found pot hidden in their 13-year-old daughter's closet, and that she was dating a guy who smelled like smoke and only answered questions with single words like, yeah, no, whatever, why, and why was the answer that Jason hated the most. He said, have her home by 10, Jason would say, why, the guy would ask. The guy would have only asked me that question once. And Jason figured that this guy was the reason that his wife, his daughter was experimenting with drugs. And Donald Miller had been thinking about story a lot. And he says to this guy, he said, uh, he said your daughter is living a terrible story. And this dad said, well, what do you mean by that? And Miller started talking to him about how that a good story is about a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. And, 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 and he said, I don't really know how to explain it fully now, but she's not living a good story. She's caught up in a bad story. And then Miller said he ran into Jason a couple of months later, and, and he asked him about his daughter, and, and Jason said, she's doing, she's doing great. And, 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 and Miller said, what happened? And, and, and Jason said, well, that night that we talked about how that she was living a bad story, I couldn't sleep. And I thought about the story my daughter was living and the role she was playing inside that story. And I realized that I hadn't mapped out a story for my family. And so my daughter had chosen a story in which there was risk and adventure, rebellion and independence he said, I realize she's 13 years old. She's not a bad girl. She's just choosing the best story available to her. And, 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 and he, he said, that night I decided I needed to quit yelling at her, and I needed to, to write a better story for my family. And he said, I found this organization that builds orphanages. Uh, where, where, where individuals or organizations for $25,000 can build an orphanage in a place uh, some, in somewhere in the world where there's tremendous need for kids who are living in, in impoverished situations. And he said, I went to my wife and my daughter and I said, what would it be like for us to sacrifice over the next year? Sacrifice, and he started naming some of the things that they would normally do as a family. But what would it be if we didn't do those things, but instead we, we came up with $25,000 and we built an orphanage for these kids in these foreign, this foreign country. And the, the girl and the mom thought about it actually overnight and they came back to him and the girl started sacrificing from her allowance and some of her privileges and some of the luxury things in her life. This was not a wealthy family. This is a middle or even lower middle class family that ends up raising $25,000 to build a, 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 an orphanage in a foreign country. This guy said, I decided to quit yelling and to create a better story for my family. And then Miller said, what about, what about the guy? He said, oh, she broke up with her boyfriend. He said, no girl who plays the role of a hero dates a guy who uses her. She knows who she is. She just forgot for a little while. So 
What is the narrative of your family? What is the narrative of your family, parents? I strongly encourage you to make sure you're inviting your children into God's good story. It's got to be more than sports and bands. That's all good. It's wonderful. It's great. It should be involved in those things. It's got to be more than, than, than you understand. I don't need to, to list all the things. Somehow or another, there has to be a moral of the story. They have to be involved in moral conflict. And, 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 and you, if I may say this uh, uh, gently, you must make sure that they are getting a moral education. The best place that happens is in the home and in the church. We view our role here in the church as supporting the parents in the home, giving their children a moral education. Now, I'd imagine that you make your kids go to school in order for them to get an education, right? In fact, some of you, after quarantine and remote learning, you'd like to make your kids go to school this afternoon. But in, under normal, there's no, probably no question in your home. And no one argues about whether or not your kids fundamentally are going to go to school. You, you make your kids go to school. But listen, guys, the school is supposed to be educating them in, in reading and writing and arithmetic and, 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 and those things, but the, the, the job of the school is not to educate your children morally. In fact, in the public school system, it's difficult to educate them morally because you're not allowed to talk about God. That's not the role of the school. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the way it is. You're not allowed to talk about God, and God is the source of good. And God is the source of morality. Morality comes from God. So if you can't talk about God, ultimately you can't really talk about the ultimate fight between good and evil and what life's really about and the, the great moral drama that we're living into. So you have to make sure then that your kids are in places where they're being educated morally. That needs to happen in the home more than any place else, but also a church like ours is very concerned about creating a positive environment where young people, they're not coming and being babysat on Sunday morning in K-Port. They're being taught the story of God and the stories of God in a way that will influence their thinking for the rest of their lives. Our Redline Youth Ministry, which is absolutely amazing, is, a, is an environment where young people are being taught the story and the stories of God and being invited into the great moral conflict. So you make them go to school, you should make sure that they are in environments and that you're creating environment where they understand God's story, are being invited into God's story. Here's the third decision. I sound kind of preachy right there, didn't I? I, I hope you heard me. Here's the third decision you have to make. You have to decide who the hero of your story is. You have to decide who the hero of your story is. So, <clears throat> I, I, I guess what kind of got me on this line of thinking was that I, I picked up a book by Donald Miller relatively recently written. The one I've been referring to was written maybe a decade ago. But I picked up a book he wrote actually about marketing that I'm sure some of you've read in a business context called Story Brand. And this is where Miller now, who's sold millions and millions of books, is helping companies and nonprofits think about how to market in, lines, in, in, in alignment with the story, which isn't what I want to 
discuss today. I'm just telling you where this comes from, and, and I, it just caused me to start thinking about this whole thing in a little bit of a different way. And in this, uh, in this book, he expands on the idea of what makes a good story. It's still fundamentally a character who wants something, who overcomes conflict to achieve it, but, but here it is a little bit bigger. He says, story in a nutshell is this. Here is nearly every story you see or hear in a nutshell. And by the way, watch a movie, watch this happen. If it's a good movie, this is what happens in the movie. We watched a great movie last night. It was rated PG-13, right? So I can tell them what it was. What was it called? Peanut Butter Falcon. Holy moly, this Down Syndrome kid, this hero of this story. Anyway. Here's the story in a nutshell. A character who wants something encounters a problem before they can get it. At the peak of their despair, a guide steps into their lives, gives them a plan, and calls them to action. That action helps them avoid failure and ends in a success. So again, a character wants something, they have a problem, and at the peak of their despair, a guide steps into their lives, which Miller's saying, your company has to step into their life to address this problem they have, and give them a plan, call them to action, help them avoid failure and end in success. His first principle then is that to successfully market to a customer, the customer must be the main character in the story. He says, the customer is the hero, not your brand. So when you see the word behind me, uh, character, you could also see the word hero. And so, so let, let, let's just say here at TLCC, for instance, to give you a little uh, glimpse of the sausage making, there, there are a group of, of, of us who've been reading through StoryBrand, and we've been asking the question, how do we make the people who show up on a Sunday, who watch us online, who engage in our church, how do we make them the hero? In other words, where it's not about us, come join us, we're saying, you're the person that we exist to serve. We want to inspire you to the life God dreams for you anyway, enough of that except to say that we're trying to think about that. But, but I, I want to think about this now on another level. I like the way that it applies to marketing, and to some extent, I like the way it applies to each of us in our own stories, which means that to some degree, we each get to be the hero of our own story. But this is what I've learned. In the realities of my life, I'm not a very good hero. Why? Because I have problems that I can't solve on my own. Miller says that the character or hero has a problem that he or she can't solve and they need a guide. I'm going to suggest actually in the bigger story of life, the hero needs a hero in order to be a hero. See, in the micro-narratives of life, I have a lot of problems that I need help with. I mean, all of us every day, right? We, in, 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 in all the stories that we're living, in our relationships, in our financial lives, in uh, whatever, uh, we have problems and we need, we need help to overcome those problems because even though we're the hero of our own story, we all need help, right? But in the macro-narrative... In the big story of God and God's plan for humanity, I've discovered that I have a problem, singular. See, there are micro-narratives, live within the macro-narrative, and in the micro-narratives, I have problems. But in the macro-narrative, the big problem, the big story of my life, I have a problem, singular. And that problem is called sin. And... Sin is a problem that I can't solve 
myself. Now, I know talking about sin is not a very popular thing, and there are pastors who they, they don't touch it, which I don't really understand. I preach the gospel without talking about sin, because if, you, if there's not sin, you don't need Jesus, okay? So you got to kind of talk about this. I want to remind you of something I've said a lot, which is the word sin, as it's most used in the New Testament, means to miss the mark. I know this is something some of you have heard me say a lot, but it's a really big concept to understand the whole story of God. Sin means to miss the mark. Most of the time when we think about sin, we think about sins. We think about the things that we do that we shouldn't do and the things we don't do that we should do. Sins of omission, sins of commission. If we've had any moral education at all, we know if we tell a lie, we know that we've sinned and our conscience is pricked and we say, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. We just sinned. Okay, But those sins are a byproduct of sin. Sins, plural, are a byproduct of sin, singular. Sin means to miss the mark. So in the narrative of Scripture, God's story was disrupted when the first human beings sinned, which means they chose not to play their role in the story. They missed the mark. But see, the problem is that Scripture teaches us now that when each of us are born, we are born with this miss-the-markness in our basic DNA. We're told in Scripture, like it or not, we are born sinners. By the way, did anyone here ever have to teach their child how to do something wrong? It's like, I need to teach you to throw that plate off your high chair when you're upset. You didn't have to teach them. They just knew how to do it. How do they know how to do it? Because we're born with sin in our DNA. We, nobody has to teach us how to do wrong. <laughs> the, the, the fact is that left to our own devices, we will miss the mark. We will not play our role in God's story. And each of us have this problem, whether we realize it or not. And, and, and we can't really get to the Jesus thing until we acknowledge this. Paul said to the Romans, he said, all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned in what? We all have missed the mark. But all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now see, that leads us to the good news. The good news is that Jesus came to deal with the most fundamental thing that keeps us from living our best story. He came to deal with sin. He came to keep us from missing the mark. He came to reconnect us to God and God's story in this world. On the cross, he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Though he was the perfect human being, he became sin for us. And he put sin to death on the cross and entered death and defeated death. He did this so he could deal with the fundamental problem that keeps us from living the story we were made to live. In this way, Jesus becomes the hero of our story. Can I see the diagram again, please? So here we are, here we are. Each of us, the hero of our own story. That sounds like a good thing, right? Wow, and you are, you're the main character in your own story to a certain extent. But all of us have a problem. Now I'm talking about the macro narrative of our lives, right? The the overall arching story of God and how we fit into, we all have a problem. The problem is we were born in sin And therefore, we're born missing the point. If we're not careful, we miss the point. We want a Maserati when we should be wanting, you know, 
whatever it is God really made us for. But see, the good news is, is that into our story comes more than a guide. Into our story comes a hero. In fact, into our story comes a superhero who deals with the problem that keeps us from re-engaging with the plan where we take the action we need to take to live the life God dreamed for us and avoid screwing our lives up and instead live the story that God destined for our lives. The fact is, That for us to be the hero of our own story, we need a hero to deal with the fundamental problem that keeps us from living the story that we were made to live. And here's how, here's how we connect to that story. If we just look at scripture in a very simple way, here's how we can let him be the hero that helps us be the hero of our best story. First of all, we have to repent. To repent means that we acknowledge we have this problem and we turn from it. We say, I realize it just within myself. I'll miss the point. I'll miss the mark. I won't live the role God made for me to play. So I'm going to turn from that and turn to God and say, I need you. We repent. Secondly, we confess our faith. We confess our faith in Jesus and who he is and what he did and what he does. And when we confess our faith, we're taught that we come alive to God. And the way that he meant life to be lived... And then thirdly, we're taught that we're supposed to be baptized. Baptism is huge to this story because baptism is where we bury our sinful past. Baptism is where we bury that person who misses the mark. Baptism is that person, is where we bury that person who if we just go our own way, we're going to screw it all up. Baptism is where we bury that person and scripture tells us that we're raised to new life so that we can reconnect to God's plan for us. Scripture tells us that we're baptized for the remission of our sins. The remission of our sins. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remission has to do with being forgiven of our sins and released from our sins. We bury the old, miss the mark person and up is raised a new person reconnected to God and God's plan with the ability to live a new life. See. When we repent and confess our faith and are baptized, God fundamentally changes the trajectory of our story. Jesus becomes the hero or the superhero, if you please, who helps us live the story we were meant to live. We're no longer on our own. He gives us the power to live a better story than we could ever possibly expect to live on our own. This doesn't mean we don't have problems. It just means now we have a hero to help us face our problems. It doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It just means now we have a hero. We're fundamentally changed in our DNA. And now we have, through the Spirit of God, a hero who helps pull us up from our mistakes and keep us on a path to avoid failure and to experience success. Paul said to the Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, I speak this to those of you who are about to be baptized right now. When you are baptized into Christ Jesus, you're baptized into his death. We were therefore 
buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so today there are going to be some folks who fundamentally deal with the problem through the grace of Jesus Christ and who are raised to live the life God dreamed for you and you're not going to do, be doing it on your own. The Holy Spirit is going to cause you to come alive in a way that you've never experienced before. Can we all please stand together? Let's give a great big shout out for all the folks who are going to be baptized today.